Let's read once again uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It begins at verse 19 of chapter 16 of the Gospel of Luke. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his Finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, this is the third sermon that I have preached on this parable, and I've said in the other two that that this parable is a um, is a study in contrasts. And boy, is it ever! It's it's really kind of hard to overstate the fact because you you see it in in so many ways throughout the parable. For instance, um, that that purple fine linen stuff. Oh, that's long gone. That um, eating sumptuously in those exotic and fancy meals. That's just a memory. All his creature comforts are gone. It's, it's the contrast between living, living in the lap of luxury versus living in anguish. It's quite a contrast. Um, or how about this? Um, he, he sees something that he's never seen before. Um, he, sees, he sees the bosom of Abraham. The, this text, I mean, the ESV says Abraham's side, but... The, the language that seems to be more familiar is that he sees the bosom of Abraham. His eyes had never seen that before because perhaps they had never looked that direction before. Up. But that's, um, that's, that's a, quite a shift in perspective. And then not only does he see things that he's not seen before, but he does something that he's never done before. He prays. Um... There again, that, that's, um, 
That's a shift. But, but for me, the thing that is the most compelling, the thing that is the most radical about this, about this whole change, the most radical part of this whole shift in, in his perspective has to do with, with this man's value system. His, his values uh, are, are so changed. Uh, and that shows up in a couple of ways in the parable, which I want to show you in a minute. But before we, we do that, I want you to understand something about this, this section of the parable. From verses 24 on to the end of the, um, the parable, what you're getting is a conversation. A conversation that is, that is taking place between the rich man and Abraham. What we're doing is eavesdropping on a conversation, a dialogue, an exchange that is taking place between the rich man and, and, um, and Abraham. Um, and, and the thing to keep in mind while we're, while we're looking at this conversation is that this, is, um, this conversation, in this conversation, Jesus is teaching. And, and boy, am I ever glad that, he, that he's teaching. Because, number one, this is a pretty important subject. I mean, even if you... you I mean, even the non-Christian world thinks about, is there anything after the grave? This is a pretty important subject. And not only that, there, there, is, there are some strange ideas that seem to circulate around, um, around this whole subject. And so, um, this in essence is a lecture. A lecture in the form of a conversation. Um, and, and in this lecture, Jesus is going to correct a few of the, uh, the false notions about life after death. And, and, and I would submit to you that you and I... We need to bring our views in line with these or with his. Some of our views, some of our values need to be reversed before we, before we get to that side of eternity. But gratefully, Jesus steps behind the lectern and he begins to teach. So, class... Uh, listen up. In my understanding of the parable, there are three points of emphasis that he makes from verse 24 on. We only have time for two of those today, and we'll get to the, the, the third one next week. Um, but the first point of emphasis has to do with choosing a value system. The second point of emphasis is understanding finality. So that's where uh, my comments are going to go. Um, choosing a value system and understanding finality. So let's talk first about this, uh, this value system because that's, that's the first thing that I, I see him mentioning here is a need for a radical change in a value system as is illustrated in this rich man. Let me show you what I mean. Um, you'll notice that the rich man, his primary concern now is for mercy. Um, mercy for himself and then later on in the parable for his five brothers. 
that which he could have given to Lazarus daily, but didn't, is now what he desperately wants for himself. He he didn't value mercy here, but he deeply values mercy now. Not five minutes after he died, the rich man senses his need. And tragically, had he asked for mercy while alive, instead of a drop of water, God would have given him rivers, rivers of living water. But notice as the, as the conversation goes on, as the exchange develops, I want you to notice how Abraham responds or replies to that request. Abraham says, oh, I am so glad to see that you've come to your senses and, 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 and seen the error of your ways. Certainly, uh, I'll send Lazarus with a canteen of water because I wouldn't want to see you suffer one more second. And that's not what's in there, ladies and gentlemen. So do you know what that teaches? I mean, you know what Jesus is teaching us there? He's teaching us that there comes a day when the door of grace slams shut. The text that comes to mind is one out of Isaiah where where Isaiah says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. That little word while (laughs) implies that there's going to come a time when he's not here. Just like you find here. I I don't know this woman. Um, I was given this quote by one of you. Her name is Minette Walker, and she said this. The condemned soul knows that love exists, but is forever condemned to exist without it. He apparently also knows that mercy exists, but is condemned to live without that too. In hell, there is no place for hope either. So no love, no mercy, no hope. And yet for us now, all three of those things are available in abundance. There's another way that I think you see the shift in his value system. Um, And it's in this. Never would he have dreamed that a day would come when he would have gladly exchanged all of his millions for a glass of water. And to think he could have had, he could have had rivers of living water, but the rich man would not have traded places with Lazarus for anything yesterday. But he would now. And, and, and the thought runs through his mind, if only I had used my earthly resources differently. You know, guys, years ago, when I, was, um, when I was still in Florida, I got a phone call one afternoon from a 27-year-old woman who had just found a suicide note that had been written by her 21-year-old brother. And um, she was frantic. Didn't know where he was. 
He'd left a note behind. But one of the things that she pointed out in the course of the conversation, and I don't even know why she did it. I don't know what her motive was in telling me this, but she, she, what she said was, and he left home in his brand new BMW convertible. The young man killed himself. And that car was not mentioned again. Nobody, nobody cared about the car anymore. It's funny how that happens, isn't it? You know, there's a scene in the movie Titanic. I love the movie. Um, there's a scene where this elderly, wealthy woman races back to her stateroom, frantically searching for something. And so she sweeps away all of her diamond bracelets and earrings and pendants and brooches. And she reaches for and grabs three oranges. She goes back to the lifeboat with her three oranges. You know, I I had never seen this text before. I, I only found it in preparation for this series. But I just want to read you one verse. It's, it's, it's out of Ezekiel 7. It says this. They cast their silver into the streets, and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it. You know, guys, what causes or what produces that kind of value shift? Well, I can't answer that for you. But but this much I can say. That is one of the goals of our teacher, Jesus. it's, It's one of the motives, one of his motives behind the telling of this parable. What he would, what he's instructing us is that he would have us to to ask ourselves a series of questions about our value system. You know, you know what does, you know what does that for me? I mean, that is what makes me slow down and value differently. You know what it is? Health. Have you ever had the stomach flu, stomach virus? You know, you you went out to supper the previous night and you you feasted on some fine meal, and about about two a.m. Wham! This thing, this invader, hits you, and and you are overtaken, and that meal and everything else is long gone, one way or the other. And, and about 12 hours later, when things are beginning to, to settle down, your wife brings you a, a cracker and a Sprite. And that is all you want. And it tastes so good. And you remember, gosh, ain't health grand well, guys, it's, it's that kind of shift that is needed throughout my whole value system. And that is one of the lessons that Jesus is teaching in this parable. 
Choosing a value system. Examining a value system. That's one of the takeaways, or at least supposed to be, of this parable. You know, um, one of the things that just really stops me in my tracks is, is in verse 25 when Abraham said, Child, remember that you, in your lifetime, Remember those, those good things that you made into your gods in your lifetime? Remember the stream of things on which you fixed your attention in your lifetime? Those were the things that spelled your doom in your lifetime. You know, gang, there, there's no more pitiable sight on all the, in all the earth as, as an unsaved man or woman who's at peace. A, a man who, who remains content in a life without God. What is it that contents you? Uh, what has become a substitute deity for you? The teacher wants to know. That, that's, that's one of the applications of his lesson here. He's, he's teaching us that you and I are making some awfully important choices in this lifetime. C.S. Lewis said, a man can't be taken to hell or sent to hell. You can only get there on your own steam. Important choices. Do you think the rich man now thought that those good things were good? Do you think that anyone in hell thinks his choices were wise and he, and he really got a good deal? I mean, what, what, what value do you think Judas now puts on those 30 pieces of silver? All of that, ladies and gentlemen, needs to be thought through in this lifetime. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the instruction from one counsel from one who is the king of kings. It's a mercy. It's a mercy that he's teaching us the lessons now in this lifetime. There's a second point that I want you to see. It has to do with the, uh, the understanding of finality. I guess really the most bitter pill of all in this whole this whole parable is, um, is this second lesson. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the, the most horrible word in this parable is the word fixed. A great chasm fixed. That, that chasm is not there by accident. It is firmly established by immutable law. 
It's not temporary, it's permanent. And there are few passages in the Bible that prove more the certainty of the eternality of future punishment than does this one word. But, I mean, but, but, but what about what about purgatory? And, 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 you know, I heard somebody teach just recently that, that um, after a while, everyone gets a second chance. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I, I guess it depends on who your teacher is. I, I'm not the teacher. Jesus is teaching. And in his teaching, he doesn't mention either of those things. And not only that, in verse 26b, the second half of verse 26, he seems to go out of his way to refute both of those things. And the lesson, the lesson that I think we're supposed to get is there is no deliverer in hell. There is one on earth. The the, the possibility of faith and repentance, it exists now. But it doesn't exist there. Because that great chasm is fixed. The urgency of this parable, ladies and gentlemen, is the urgency of the fixed chasm. You know, I heard R.C. Sproul say this years ago. Years ago. I mean, it was, I think I was still in when I heard him say it. But he tells a story about um, one of his students that came to him and he says, um, the student said, Dr. Sproul, I mean, um, you, you, you don't believe in a, you don't believe in a literal hell, do you? I mean, uh, uh, you don't believe that hell is a literal lake of fire. I mean, I mean, it's just symbols, right? And um, NRC said, right, right, it's, it's symbols. And then he went on to ask a question. He said, well, let me ask you a question. Uh, let me ask you something about symbols. Do symbols fall short... Or do they exceed the reality to which they point? And then he added, I believe that any man in hell today would give anything that he owned or ever did own if hell were only a lake of fire. Well, you know, that's my problem with you, Dr. Young. Uh, it's, it's that, is that you keep talking about hell like it's a real place. Yeah, I do. But that's not because R.C. Sproul taught me that. But it's because Jesus Christ taught me that. Jesus is the one who told this parable. So what's your take on all this? I mean, um, is this just a, a cartoon, a, uh, a literary device, a, some kind of fable? You know, 
you might be right. And then again, you might be wrong. Have you ever heard of um, Pascal's Wager? Have you ever heard of that? The Pascalian Wager? Uh, you can Google it. I mean, it'll pop up in a heartbeat. It's, it's, it's become quite famous. But it was something that was posed by a man by the name of Blase Pascal. Uh, I mean, his name is B-L-A-I-S-E. Now, how do you pronounce that? Blase or Blaze or Pascal. He was a 17th century French mathematician, philosopher kind of dude. And uh, he wrote a book entitled Pensees, which is a word that simply means thoughts. And so he just had a thought and, and put it in his book. And um, I think it's thought number 223 or thereabouts is what's come to be known as Pascal's Wager or the Pascalian Wager. And it goes something like this. I, and I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> he says it far more eloquently than this. But it goes like this. He says... Um, Imagine for a moment that Jimmy Young is completely wrong. All this business about Jesus and the resurrection and, and the cross and the gospel and all that is, is wrong. And, and, and uh, when Jimmy Young dies, he goes to the grave and is annihilated. Imagine that's the truth. Then what does Jimmy Young lose? Well, I'll tell you what he lost. <laughs> well, I mean, he lost. He missed out on a pretty big time, a pretty good time, you know? I mean, just think of all those, those uh, one-night stands that he could have had. I mean, <laughs> he really missed out on a lot of fun. Are, are you, by fun, are, are you referring to that stuff that people come into my office with and say they'd give anything if they had never done that? Are, are you talking about that... That, that, that event, that act that, that people grieve over in my office and tell me if they could go back and change it, they would because it's the very thing that's ruined their family and their marriage and their home. Is, is that what you're saying that I'm missing out on? And then Pascal goes on. He then says, but imagine that you're wrong. That is, you who dismiss all of this as, as fable and fairy tale. And that it is all true. And then you die. What do you lose? Pascal is basically saying that people bet their lives either that God exists or that he doesn't. You know, guys, that may be philosophically unsatisfying for, you know, and I, I, I saw a YouTube this week where a young man was absolutely making fun of the Pascalian wager. You, that might not satisfy you. That's, that's okay. I, I, I understand that. But I'm not using that Pascal Wagers thing to, to prove God's existence. I'm not using it as a piece of apologetics. I'm just using it to illustrate what is going on right now in this classroom. 
I, I know some of you are, are not sure that you believe any of this. I get that. I understand you. I, I want to read you something that another thing that C.S. Lewis said, which I think is pretty profound. He said, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. Here he says, for all those who object in the doctrine of hell, the answer to that is a question that he poses, and here's the question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins? And at all costs to give them a fresh start? Smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? He's already done that. At Calvary. Are you asking him to forgive them? They will not be forgiven. Are you asking him to leave them alone? Alas, I am afraid that is exactly what he does. Well, ladies and gentlemen, today is the big day, isn't it? Big day. Um, I mean, college basketball teams all over this country are going to be in somebody's house, sitting in front of the television, and uh, wondering if they got in. If they got into the big dance, I, they'll, they'll be, as those brackets are announced and those uh, four regions are They'll be holding their breath to see if, like, like my school, the University of Tennessee, uh, they're a bubble team, and uh, they're wondering whether they've whether they've done enough to get in. You know, uh, did they um, did they did they have enough quality wins to uh, to make Joe Lenardi? If I hear Joe Lenardi's name mentioned one more time, to make Joe Lenardi. Uh, Forget all of those very ugly, bad losses. I mean, do we have enough good wins to, to overcome the, the bad losses so that we can get in to the big dance? I mean, people all across this country are holding their breath, trying to find out if, if they've done enough to get in to the big dance. Ladies and gentlemen, some of you live your entire life on the bubble. You live your entire life wondering, have I done enough to get in? Have my, have my good Things are there going to be enough of them to outweigh all of those bad things that I did, so that 
the great Joe Lenardi in the sky will say, okay, I'm going to let you in because you've done enough to get in to the big dance we call heaven. You live your entire life wondering, have I done enough? My friend, here's the gospel. You haven't done enough. None of us have done enough. And if we get what we deserve, None of us are going to get in. But the gospel is that everything necessary, every provision demanded, every law that needed to be kept, every sin that needed to be paid for, all of it has been done by someone else for us. His name, of course, is Jesus Christ. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, I'm getting in. But not because I'm a good person. And not because I've done enough to, a, to merit it. I'm getting in. Because Jesus Christ paid for my sin and lived the life that I was supposed to live and died the death that I was supposed to die. And all who embrace him by faith you're going to the big dance. Those are decisions that must be made In this lifetime. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you will remind us of the beauty of the gospel. That it, that it rests completely on Christ's finished work. On nothing that we have ever done or ever will do. That our souls are safe. All because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And Father, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met this beautiful Savior of ours, would you cause them to see that this life that they live on the bubble is misery? Cause them to see, O oh God, that what they need is not another big win. What they need is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Lead people to the Savior today, Lord, and do so for Jesus' sake. We ask it in his name.